0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, it's funny how God works. Uh, I was sharing with um, our Crosswinds University class uh, this morning of just uh, the connections and the ways that God orchestrates things, as Melissa shared, uh, coincidentally, our passage today, as you can see from the sermon title, is about our mission as a local church to reach on to the other side of the globe with the gospel of Christ. And so, I invite you to open up to First Timothy chapter two this morning as we look at this passage. That is a powerful passage, a beautiful passage on our responsibility as a church. To see the gospel brought to the ends of the earth. I have to confess as you're turning to this, uh, this passage that it is a, a very um, convicting passage for me this morning. As I mentioned, this is a passage that is about the local church's commitment to see the gospel brought to the ends of the earth. Specifically focusing on our call as a church toward global prayer. As we hear Melissa's heart of God tugging at her heart to bring that gospel to people who haven't heard it yet, who haven't fully been able to understand it yet, 1 Timothy chapter 2 speaks of our calling as a church and partnering with people exactly like her. Now, here's why this is so convicting for me. When Crystal and I were first married, we were globally-minded prayers. Every, sun, every single night after supper, we would spend time praying through a book called Operation World that focuses on the needs of the church in every single country on the face of the planet. This was during a time when we were trying to discern our own calling into mission work, whether God was calling us to the mission field, and so we committed to pray for all of the nations on the earth and to see the gospel spread to each of these nations, now, at some point, I don't remember when, we drifted from this commitment. It could have been because of the pressing concerns of, of church here. It could have been the, the pressing concerns of the priorities of prayers for our family. It squeezed out this commitment to global prayer. And that drift in my own prayer life is really seen here on Sunday mornings. Each Sunday morning before the sermon, in fact, I just did it, we pray for the needs of our church Oftentimes, we will pray for guidance, for God's blessing upon our church. We'll pray for our Spirit Lake campus. We'll pray for the other churches in our community. Sometimes we'll pray for the pressing needs of our nation. And rarely do we pray for the global church beyond just giving it lip service here and there about God's word being spread across the globe. The drift that I see in my own prayer life has really affected our church and our commitment, our calling, as we're going to see here in 1 Timothy 2, our commitment to a global vision for prayer. And so as we start this morning, I just want to ask for your forgiveness, really wrestling through what exactly this means for us as a church when we gather on Sunday mornings. I want to spend some time and not just make a a rash decision on, on making some changes for us as a church, but at the same time... It's my prayer that we would commit ourselves, or maybe recommit ourselves, either individually or corporately, that we would commit ourselves to the global vision for prayer that we see in the gospel. In fact, as we approach 1 Timothy 2, that's exactly what we see. The first half of this chapter is all about prayer, specifically for prayer for all peoples prayer that would go to the ends of the earth. And I think that's what God wants for us this morning. The local church has a global mission to pray. The local church has a global mission to pray. Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus that has its own problems, its own needs, and yet Paul says, you cannot lose your vision of a globally spanning prayer. And that is our call this morning. That is our charge this morning. We cannot lose sight of having a globally spanning prayer. If we have lost that, we must reclaim it as a part of our calling as a church. We must reclaim it as a part of our calling as Christians. Remember, 1 Timothy is all about what does it mean to be the church. And as what we see here, for Paul Prayer is of utmost importance. Prayer is central for us as a church. And so as we approach this text, we're going to see three truths for us this morning about the centrality of prayer to the mission of our church and the health of our church, specifically an emphasis on prayer for the nations that do not know Christ. It is my prayer this morning that God would awaken within each and every one of us a heart to pray. And more than that, that God would awaken within each and every one of us a heart to pray for the spread of the gospel here in Spencer, among the Fulani people of Nigeria, among the Kecha people of Peru, among the Kalash people of Pakistan, and on and on and on, that the gospel would spread to the ends of the earth. But before we address these globally-minded prayers, we have a problem here in the United States, and that is our strong inclination to not pray. The American church today believes, I think, three lies about prayer that we must first reject before we embrace our calling to prayer. The first one is this. Prayer is hard. Prayer is hard. Many of us struggle to pray because we don't know how to pray. We think that prayer is too hard for us. Many of us can't pray or think we can't pray because we haven't been taught how to pray. And yet when we look at the Bible, we see that prayer is one of the most basic things that there is. Jesus mentions multiple times that we are to have faith like a child. Once or twice in connection to these phrases, he is talking about prayer. Romans 8 tells us that the Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know how to pray. We see in Hebrews chapter 4 that we are to approach the throne of God with confidence. We see in Philippians chapter 4 that we are to make all of our requests known to God. Prayer does not have to be hard. But at the same time that we see that prayer is too hard, some of us believe the opposite lie. Prayer is too easy. Prayer is easy. Some of us may have a tendency to confuse the simplicity of prayer with ease. And maybe we don't pray like we should because we think that prayer is supposed to be easy. If we were good Christians, then it would be easy for us. And because it isn't, we say, what's the use? Other people can pray. Now, prayer certainly isn't Hard. We don't have to have a seminary degree to know how to pray to God, but at the same time, it is not easy. It takes discipline. It takes hard work to die to self, to set aside time for prayer. It takes a mindset is the opposite of the busyness of our world, especially here in the United States, to do nothing but pray. Tim Keller once said it this way, prayer can be simple, but it is not easy. Nothing great ever is. The greatness of prayer means that sometimes we will struggle. We will have to wrestle. We will have to struggle and die to our own flesh in order to pray. Prayer is not hard, but it is not easy. The final lie that we need to confront before we pray is this prayer does no good. Another way of putting this is saying that prayer is a waste of time. Prayerlessness is extremely common in the United States today. It's it's common among U.S. Christians today because we oftentimes do not see or perhaps do not look for tangible fruit for our prayers or of our prayers. Perhaps we're not praying for the right things. Perhaps we're not looking for the right things. Many of us may have experienced praying for months and months and maybe even years without seeing fruit in the lives of those that we pray for. We pray that God would save family members who do not know him, but we give up after years of seeing no change whatsoever. We think that God isn't listening or that God doesn't want to answer our prayer. But when we give up, when we think that prayer is a waste of time, we can miss the sweetness of God's answered prayers offered with persistence. George Mueller was a missionary in Bristol, England in the 1800s. He worked among inner-city youth and founded a number of missionary or uh, uh, found an orphanage that, that served over 10,000 children as a missionary. In his time as, uh, as an inner city missionary, he, he spent time praying for two men to be converted. He prayed for these two men for 50 years without ceasing. And for 50 years, he saw no fruit. And yet he persisted. Near the end of his life, months before he died, the first of those two men was converted and became a Christian. God answered his prayer. God allowed him to see the fruit. The other one became a Christian shortly after he died. After 50 years of remaining faithful, God answered his prayers. Prayer does indeed do good. It is not a waste of time. Our culture is ruled by instant gratification. We live in the age of Amazon Prime, where if I want something, I can order anything on the face of the planet, essentially, and have it at my doorstep in two days or less. We live in the age of instant gratification through streaming movies, through the internet, through television, through our smartphones. All of these things reinforce the lie that anything that is worth having is worth having now. And yet prayer says otherwise. In our climate of instant gratification, persistence to prayer is completely and utterly abnormal. It often suffers and dies, and we must remind ourselves that fruit can sometimes take months or years, and we must remain persistent. This is true in our lives, but it's also true in the lives of global missions. If you look at church history, you can see story after story of famous missionaries who began their work in the mission field with complete and utter frustration over the lack of fruit. Hudson Taylor is known as the founder of missions to China. He waited 11 years before he saw much fruit. Adinaram Judson was one of the first missionaries to go to Myanmar. In the first 6 years of his ministry he lost more children 3 than he did converts, than he saw converts, 1. Joanne Shetler was a missionary to the Philippines. After five years of faithful mission work, she only saw two converts. Fruit takes time. God used each and every one of these people in mighty ways, answered their prayers, but first they had to wait. God never answered their prayers out of immediacy, but instead out of persistence. And so if we as a church want to commit ourselves to a global vision for prayer, we must first recognize the lies of our culture and approach prayer the way Paul would have us do so. Let's approach 1 Timothy and see our three truths for us this morning. The first one is this, global comprehensive prayers are central to the church's mission. Global, comprehensive prayers are central to the church's mission. If we want to be a healthy church, we must pray. And more specifically, we must pray globally. Take a look at the first two verses of chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. Paul writes these words moments after addressing the false teaching happening in Ephesus, and he says that these people who are teaching these false things are consumed with speculation. Instead of wasting your time on these myths, these genealogies, focus on prayer. Focus your efforts on prayer. Notice that Paul begins this passage by saying, first of all, These words highlight the primacy of prayer in a church's mission, in our church's mission. Prayer is not to be an added afterthought. It is one of the most important things that we can do as a church. Much has been said, parsing the differences between the four terms for prayer that are mentioned here. We see supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. Supplication typically means bringing an entreaty before someone who is superior to you. Prayer, of course, means prayer. Intercession means praying for someone else. Thanksgiving, of course, offering up thanksgivings. What's not important in this passage is a legalistic interpretation that says we aren't truly praying if we're not offering up these four different types of prayer. What it's not saying is that we're not really praying if we're not making supplications, if we're not praying, if we're not offering up uh, thanksgiving in the ways that we're not interceding. What Paul is saying is this. He wants us to have a comprehensive look at prayer. He's essentially saying, I want you to make all types of prayer for all people. I want you to make all types of prayer for all people. People. Notice how often all is found in these verses. Verse 1. First of all, then I urge the supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Verse 3. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 6: Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Over and over in these verses, the word all is mentioned. God wants us to have a very big vision for prayer. I think there are four charges here in these first two verses for us as we talk about our calling as a church to pray. The first is this. The church offers up all prayers for all people. All prayers for all people. Our responsibility as a church is to pray for those in our church body. To pray for those in our community. We are to be indiscriminate in those for whom we pray. We pray for everyone regardless of their background. And if we want to take our mission as a church seriously, it starts by praying for one another. And so get on the prayer chain. If If you're not sure how, talk to me after this service. Submit your prayer request so that we can be praying for you. We must start by praying for everyone here. The second thing that Paul mentions is this, the church offers up all prayers for all leaders. All prayers for all leaders. There's a specific charge here to pray for our government leaders regardless of their faith or lack thereof. What's interesting is that Paul has a specific focus here. In addition to praying for their salvation if they don't know Christ, he has a a, a more pressing concern. He prays, that they would govern in a way that allows for the flourishing of the Christian community. We must pray for our leaders. Paul writes this during a time of increasing persecution, and he calls on the church to pray for those government leaders so that the church can flourish, so that the mission of the gospel goes forth. The church prays for all leaders. Third is this, the church offers all prayers for all enemies. The church offers all prayers for all enemies. In addition, this phrase, pray for our leaders, meaning to pray literally for our leaders, today it has a second meaning. The persecution of Christians was in- increasingly common when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. Nero was the emperor, and Nero is famous for a couple things. Nero wanted to redesign Rome, and he wanted to to move things around and and redistrict it, essentially, and he didn't like the way it was set up. And so he decided to start a fire, burned most of Rome to the ground. Well, he didn't want to take blame for it himself. People were obviously pretty upset, and so he blamed the Christians and said the Christians were arsonists. This led to a great deal of persecution toward Christians. Nero is, is known for using Christians as human torches in his garden, Nero is known for killing Paul and a number of the other apostles. And it's in this context of hate that Paul calls on the church to pray for Nero and to those that are persecuting them. Now, praise God, today here in the United States, we don't face anything like what was faced under Nero. But there are still facets of our society that are hostile to the gospel. Christians are not to deride their enemies. They're not to mock their enemies. They're not to hate their enemies. They are to love their enemies. They are to seek to understand their enemies. And they are to pray for their enemies. The church offers all prayers for all enemies. And the final thing is this the church offers all prayers for all peoples. The church offers all prayers for all peoples. We began by saying that we pray for all people, meaning in here. The prayer doesn't just stop there. Paul's vision is for a prayer that expands to the ends of the earth, to pray for the salvation of all peoples. The Bible, when we, when we read the word nation or nations that's used in the Bible, it doesn't refer to the same thing that we mean today. It doesn't mean arbitrary boundaries between different sovereign states. Instead, a nation, according to the Bible, is a group of people who are bound together by a shared common culture or a common language. And so while there are 195 different language or nations in the world, there are about 16,600 16, different people groups in the world. These people groups are what the Bible means when it talks about Nations. If you want to know what uh, defines a people group, the Evangelism Missionary Conference called the Lausanne Conference uh, issued this definition. It said this, a people group is the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church planning movement without encountering barriers of understanding or Acceptance. The Joshua Project is a very popular resource for understanding the the spread of of Christianity across the globe. It estimates that there are 16,600 people groups. Of those, only 3,250 have been reached or have sustainable church planting movements indigenous to that people group. That's less than half of those who are unreached or have no Christian presence in them. 6,700 plus have no Christian presence in them. Paul's focus is not just on individuals that is important to him, but it's not the primary focus. Paul's focus is on prayer for people groups. He wants the church in Ephesus and us, by extension, to be a catalyst for prayer for those 6,700-plus unreached people groups. He wants us to be the ones that are praying for the 1,100 minimally reached people groups and of 5,500 partially reached people groups. That doesn't mean that we we stop praying for the reached, but it is a reminder to us that we are called to pray all prayers for all peoples, not just for those that we know. Global, comprehensive prayers are central to the mission of the church. Paul explains why in the next two verses. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Why is it that global comprehensive prayers are central to our mission as a church? It's because global comprehensive prayers are central to God's heart. They are central to God's heart. The reason why we pray for different kinds of peoples is because it pleases God. The word this here refers back to our calling as a church, first of all, to offer up all prayers for all people. This commitment to pray is found in the very heart of God. Verse 4, Paul reminds us that we have a loving God who wants to see all peoples saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul is referring to both Jews and Gentiles. He's referring to both blacks and whites, Hootsies and Tootsies. He's referring to Serbs and Croatians. He's referring to Turks and Kurds. He's referring to Arabs and Dinkas. When we pray, we fall in line with the heart of God. When we pray for the gospel to be spread to all different types of people, our hearts are aligned to God's heart. The key for us to have a globally centered vision for prayer is to see that our hearts are aligned to God's when we pray. E. Stanley Jones is a famous missionary. He said this, If I throw out a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but aligning of my will to the will of God. Richard Baxter says something similar when he says this, Let your heart yearn for your ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step between them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting, ready to seize on them, and if they die unregenerate, they will be lost forever. Have you hearts of rock that you cannot pity men in such a case as this? Do you not care who is damned as long as you are saved? If so, you have sufficient cause to pity yourselves, for it is a frame of spirit utterly inconsistent with grace. Do you live close by them, or do you meet them in the streets, or work with them, or travel with them, or sit with them, and talk with them, and say nothing to them of their souls? If their houses were on fire, you would run and help them. Will you not help them when their souls are almost at the fire of hell? When we pray the things that stir God's hearts, or God's heart, our hearts are stirred as well. And the testimony of church history reminds us that when the local church, when people like us commit ourselves to pray for the nations, God Himself is at work. I mentioned Joanne Shetler, a missionary to the Philippines who struggled for the first five years of her missionary work because only two people became Christians during that time. After five years, she came home on furlough and told her home church of her struggle that she was seeing on the mission field. And her home church felt convicted, and they said, we are going to commit to pray for you. And they prayed sacrificially. And at the exact same time, God began to answer those prayers. On the other side of the globe, God answers the prayers of salvation for the nations because those prayers are central to his heart. Will we be committed to being a people of global prayer? Paul concludes with a source of these prayers. Global Comprehensive prayers flow from Christ's redeeming work. They flow from Christ's redeeming work. Verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed as a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. These verses give us three reasons why we pray. First, we pray because God deserves the praise of all nations. God deserves the praises of all the nations. Paul declares that there is only one God. He is the creator of all. The implication of this is that he is Lord of all, whether he is recognized or not. God is Lord of the Anglos here in northwest Iowa. He is Lord of the Baluch in Pakistan and Iran. He is Lord of all, he is creator of all, and as such, he deserves the praises of all peoples. We pray because God deserves the praises of the nations. Second, we see that we pray because Jesus died to save all people. We pray because Jesus died to save all people. Paul is clear that only one person can save, the God-man Jesus He reminds us that Jesus died especially and specifically for that as a ransom of people from every tribe and nation and tongue. The worship of heaven declares this, Revelation chapter 5, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take this scroll and to open its seals for you, Jesus, were slain and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign On the earth. Why do we pray for the spread of the gospel through the nations? It is because Jesus died for people from every nation. Through his blood, he purchased people from every nation to follow him for the glory of his Father. And finally, we see that we pray because we are called to global missions. We are all called to global missions. Jesus' charge to the church to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth does not rest with a select few. It does not rest just with Paul, with Hudson Taylor, with William Carey, or with Melissa Hassman. The charge to bring the gospel to the nations rests with every single one of us here at Crosswinds. It rests with the local church. It rests with you. And so Paul charges you to reach the nations. That doesn't mean that you are called to go. But it does mean that you are called to pray. You are called to pray for the spread of the gospel to the nations. God, in his infinite wisdom, entrusted the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth with you and me. We pray because we are all called to global missions. Paul, in this passage, declares clearly, beautifully, that the local church is a place of prayer. It is our responsibility as a church to pray for one another, to pray for our leaders, to pray for our enemies, and to pray for the nations. The local church is a place of prayer. That is a place that has a global mission to pray. And so as we close, just a a few ways to live out that calling. First and foremost, just pray for one another. We're starting something new this week. Uh, On your way out in the lobby, you'll see uh, some framed chicken wire. And there's a purpose to that. We're starting a prayer wall here. Ways for you to pray for one another. If you have a prayer request that you just want one person to pray for or maybe you even put it on the prayer chain and you want someone specific to pray for it, write it on the piece of paper on the table right there. Roll it up and place it in the chicken wire. When you're done, grab one of the prayer requests there and commit to pray for that person for the rest of the week. We as a church must pray for one another. That's the start to being a church of prayer. Second is this. We have to wrestle with whether our prayers as a church are actually big enough. Are our prayers primarily focused on ourselves, on our family, on our friends? Now, I'll be honest, um, there's nothing wrong with these prayers. I pray for my wife and my children every single day. I don't plan on stopping. But if our prayers stop there, if they never go to the nations, then we are missing part of God's calling for us as a church. To be a globally-minded place of prayer. Here in a few minutes, I'm going to share an opportunity that will give us a chance to commit ourselves to praying for our church, for the vision of our church, and for the nations. We'll have some resources in the coming weeks to guide our prayers as we seek to discern uh, how we are to pray for the spread of the gospel here in Clay County, the surrounding communities, and to the ends of the earth. A.B. Simpson was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, it's a denomination, and he, he said, it was said of him that every single morning when he would wake up, he would fall to his knees, he would grab a globe, and he would just weep. He would weep as he looked at all of the places that had not yet heard the gospel. I pray that the same is true of us, that we would be a people that are so moved to pray for the spread of the gospel, when we're gathered here as a church, when we're scattered into our daily lives, that we would embrace the world in prayer. Let us wrestle with whether our prayers are actually big enough. And the final thing is this. Let's repent of our prayerlessness as a church. Paul opens this passage on how a church is to be run, by saying that one of the most important things to do is to pray. And it hurts me to say this, but I don't think that's very true of our church. Forgive us, God. We have neglected that which is of great primary importance to Christ, to be a place of prayer first and foremost, to be praying for one another, to pray for our church, and to pray for the spread of the gospel to the nations. Can we as a church commit to being a praying church? Will we commit to being a praying church? Are we willing to be a group of people who are willing to consistently pray for our church, to consistently pray for one another, to consistently pray for the spread of the gospel? I hope and pray that we would take this charge seriously that this morning would not be a flash in a pan but it would be a a catalyst for lasting change to see this church be a place of prayer that we as a church would see our part in the global mission of God to see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth the local church has a global mission And that starts with prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these words that I confess are so convicting to me, so challenging to me, that rebuke me, that remind me of the ways that I have bought into the expediency of our culture. I pray that you would help us as a church to pray. Pray. To be a people of prayer that seeks your face first and foremost in all things. But that our prayers would not just stop with ourselves, but would cover the nations. Help us to do so in order to honor you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.